Okay. I guess we're good to go here. We're studying Revelation. We still had a couple, or excuse me, Hebrews. Still thinking about that debate. We were in Revelation 20. I think I left my Bible out at KKMS because I can't find my Bible. So I brought two different ones here. Okay, Hebrews 7, verse 27. We were uh, talking about this last time. We just got here. Who does not need who, that is, let's, let's start with verse 26 so we at least begin with a sentence here. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And so here's that uh, phrase that is very essential to the understanding of the gospel. That phrase being once for all. Once for all. And that is a phrase that sets Christianity apart from all systems of religion that believe in salvation by works, by human processes or efforts. But here, God does something once for all that pays for all sins. So therefore, we can uh, have confidence that there needs to be no further sacrifice. Now, it's, there's a contrast between Jesus and those other ones. It says, "But does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people." Well, there's two two good reasons why he doesn't have to do that. Number one, Jesus wasn't a sinner. He never sinned, so he didn't have to offer any sacrifice for himself. And the other contrast, for those for the people, well, the difference is the daily. This they did daily because of um, the ineffectiveness of their sacrifice compared to, because they were only looking forward to the one sacrifice that God would accept, which is the one that Jesus made. And um, his was once for all because it paid the full penalty that was demanded by God's justice in, in, in order to avert the wrath of God against sin. This is essential, a doctrine that must be preached and taught in churches, and it must be included in the presentation of the gospel. Amen. I was talking to people. One of the surprising things about the debate Friday night I had a hard time getting out of there. There were so many people. I was there to well after 10 because there were so many people wanting to talk. And what surprised me was 80, 90% of them weren't even asking about what the debate was about. They wanted to talk to me about Rick Warren and their churches. And they were saying, our church doesn't teach the Bible or preach the gospel anymore because we're in the purpose-driven program. And... What, we don't know what to do, and we don't know where to go. I heard that over and over again from people that were standing in line. A lot of them said they'd come to the Faith at Risk conference. I just got some material that quotes the version of the gospel that is included in the video. The churches that do the purpose-driven program sign up, and they have to pay for this. So I haven't actually seen the video. But a video comes to launch the first of the 40 days and it's shown in the, to the people in these churches in place of a sermon. But on the video, and I just have the text quote of it. I don't actually have the video. When he presents the gospel, he never tells the people who Jesus is or why they need him. But he has them bow their heads and, quote, unquote, open yourself up to Jesus. And whatever, what does it mean to open yourself up to Jesus? Well, I don't know. I don't know what... It, what that means, but that's what he said. And then, and then, then afterwards, he said, "Well, if you did that, now you're a Christian. You're part of the family of God." Say, so "Well, okay, Jesus, I'm open. That's how you get saved." No, it's not. And that's not uh, that's not what it's talking about. What about this offering for sins? Don't people need to know about that, or is this just not important anymore? So that's what people were talking to me after the debate. They wanted to know what to do. Put a 
excited that you shared this. Well, I figured the reason I ended with the gospel was I figured if they didn't get anything else out of it, they should get the gospel. <laughs> and somebody came up and said, well, uh, thank you for doing that. You never know. Uh, you know, maybe somebody just walked in off the street. I said, no, I didn't do it because I thought somebody might have walked in off the street. I did it because there are a lot of unconverted Christians in the world, quote-unquote. I mean, it's an oxymoron, but, but there are a lot of people that haven't heard the gospel clear enough in their church to realize what it is. And so that's why I uh, preach it like that. So, oh yeah, that was, I figured whatever time I had left, it was going to go for the gospel. Okay, so here he did once for all, and what, what offering did he make? Well, it wasn't a lamb, it wasn't a goat. It wasn't a grain offering. It wasn't a wave offering. It says he offered himself. And when Jesus came on the scene of history, John the Baptist announced, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. <laughs> what a dramatic statement that, that was. Okay, um, looking up cross-references. Sam, if you want to look up Exodus 29, 36-38, and Norma, Leviticus 16, 6, and uh, Artis, Titus 2.14, and Bert, Isaiah 53.10-12. Isaiah 53.10-12. Okay, uh, Exodus 29.36-38. There, there's the, what, that's what the author of Hebrews is referring to. What did it say? Seven days a week, day by day, continually, every day, offering, offering, offering. And, and the reason for it was that the, the altar was holy to the Lord and the priest couldn't come to it unless, there, unless he himself was cleansed. Uh, and and it was, this was a requirement of God, not only to point forward to the need for Christ, but to point to God's holiness that a sinner couldn't approach God without some sort of sacrifice having been made. And so that was a a constant reminder to the Old Testament people of the holiness of God and their need for cleansing in order to come into his presence. And in fact, the book of Leviticus is really about the holiness of God. I did. I taught through it one time at a little Bible class that somebody was out of town and they wanted me to teach it for them. And they said, well, you're supposed to teach the book of Leviticus. I said, in one setting? Yep. Well, they go faster than we do, don't they? <laughs> so I said, okay. And I, I read the book of Leviticus and I read a commentary on Leviticus and made sure I understood everything about Leviticus. It was kind of an interesting thing. So I made an outline to kind of work through it so I could get through the basic ideas in Leviticus. But Leviticus was about the holiness of God and the consciousness of sin that the people had in their need for cleansing. And that's what this was all about. And uh, very interesting. Okay, talking about Leviticus, Leviticus 16.6. So Aaron has to make an atonement for himself. Even Aaron has to do this. Titus 2.14. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself a people for his own Wow. So that's what he's doing. He purifies for himself a people. He gave himself for us. Very good verse. That was Titus 2.14. Now Isaiah 53.10-12 through 12 is a prophetic section about this. Let the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself and make no offering, he will see his offering, he will grow in his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. 
That's Messianic prophecy. And notice there in the Old Testament, it, it says that my righteous one, which is Messiah, would bear the iniquities of the people. It's prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures. And so, it wasn't just a new idea when Jesus came and took away sins. It was predicted in the Old Testament Scriptures that, that God Himself would do it through the righteous one. Yes. Go ahead and read it. God will provide. Wow. Amen. Okay. Um, I let's go to the next verse. So that was uh, that what Jesus did for us. Hebrews seven twenty eight says, "For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever." Well, let's see if you've been paying attention. What verse? To what verse that came after the law is the reference? We've mentioned it about ten times in the last few weeks. It's okay if you don't know, but just think about it. What does he think? What verse is he talking about that appoints the Son? Psalm 110. I got the answer. Ah, you cheated! He cheated. <laughs> Psalm 110 and verse 4. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's uh, the last couple chapters of Hebrews has been a commentary on Psalm 110 and verse 4. And that psalm comes after the law, after Moses. And so he is summarizing his argument here by saying that the Son was made perfect. Thou art a priest forever after, so that's an appointment after the order of Melchizedek. William Lane says this, The law appointed to the high priestly office men who by virtue of the limitations common to human nature were subject to imperfection and sin. In the context, the term asthenia, weakness, is almost equivalent to sin. The weaknesses of the Levitical high priest is openly displayed in the obligation to offer sacrifice repeatedly for their own sin as well as for those of the people. The perfection of the new priest is exhibited and is fully accomplished in the offering of himself once for all as all as a sufficient sacrifice for the transgressions of the people. His own sinlessness required of him no sin offering and assured the unconditional efficacy of his atoning death. So that's a summary of what we have learned. Now there's some contrasts here. There's a contrast between the law in this verse, and the oath. The law would be what we read in Exodus and Leviticus. The oath is Psalm 110 and verse 4. There's a contrast between men and the Son. They were many and they were sinners. He is one and he is sinless. And there's a contrast between the weak and the perfect. It says uh, priests who are weak, and then the, the, the law appoints the Son made perfect forever. So we, there we have three contrast in Hebrews 7.28 concerning the Old Testament uh, priesthood and the high priestly work of Jesus Christ. The uh, book of Hebrews here obviously puts a lot of emphasis on this. I wonder why. Why does, why does this... Uh, the topic is introduced in chapter 5. And then the author of Hebrews says, well, you can't, you're not ready to hear this because you don't want to study and you don't want to learn. And that's why you lack discernment. And then he rebukes them in chapter 6 and warns them about apostasy. And then he goes back and teaches it anyhow. Uh, and because he felt like they needed it. And I've heard uh, justification for the way most evangelical churches are doing business nowadays, and that is watering everything down uh, people and the excuse is well people are you know they got TV and they got instant entertainment and people don't have time to spend studying and learning and uh, they don't know these things so they can't handle it well I would say if that's true follow the pattern of the New Testament because the book of Hebrews said that's the way his his uh, audience was 
And he rebuked him for it and taught him anyhow. And so rather than watering it down because that's just where people are at, you should say, now listen, you need to learn, and I know you haven't been taught, but we'll remedy that. Now let's roll up our sleeves and get into the Word. That's what ought to be done rather than just, you know, going to this lowest common denominator because that's where the culture is at. Um, you get the same thing in the schools, the the, the public schools. The, well, the average person who's in high school is reading at a whatever, you know, fifth grade level. So that's why we have to have it so simple. So, well, wait a second. Rather than just accepting that, why don't you demand that they learn to read at high school level? <laughs> you know, and it's bad enough that the schools dumb themselves down, but do the churches have to do the same? I would hope not. Well, we finished the chapter, so now let's switch to, where's my other clipboard? I get to start a new clipboard. But they didn't throw no chairs at you, did they, Pastor? You told the truth. It's like Schuler, he's the high priest of man-centered uh, preaching, and that's what they want. Uh, Jesus, they wanted to kill him everywhere. He went for telling the truth. Paul, they created a great disturbance. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, these, these guys, uh, they don't create a disturbance at all because... Uh, you know, it's man-centered, and that's what Schuler said. We're going to have it no longer God-centered. The new uh, Christianity be man-centered, like you said before, the Tower of Babel, and it'll be like the days of Noah, man-centered, and there'll be no uh, problems. No, uh, yeah. I like it when a preacher goes around and want to throw chairs at him because he told the truth. That's a real <laughs> compliment from God. You get a few chairs thrown at you. Well, uh, well that's why we have pews, so they can't get them loose. <laughs> I know. They're living for this world, not the one to come. Let's go to let's go to chapter eight. Um, interestingly, an interesting way he summarizes this. Now, the main point, in case you didn't get it, we've just had uh, Psalm one ten. Literally, has been going on for like three or four chapters, different allusions to Psalm one ten. And so now the author says this. Now, the main point. And what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every So he's saying, all right, we're on this topic. What are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus Christ. What do we know about him? He is the perpetual high priest who was appointed by God. Where is he doing his ministry? At the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. Uh, the, the interesting phrase here, the throne of the majesty in the heavens. <laughs> wow, what a, a glorious description of where our Lord is. A minister in a sanctuary that God pitched, not man. So we'll be talking about this pattern. in uh, Chapter 8 here is just an excellent uh, teaching, section of teaching. Um, last week when I brought this up, is it, are you noticing how many times the Bible says that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father? That he bodily ascended in heaven, that, that there he is. And I suggested that that being the case, this whole mystical movement that says you find Christ by going within yourself is absolutely false. Amen. Now, if you remember last week, there was a, a, a visitor who asked a very good question. The question was, but isn't Jesus in us? Doesn't the Bible say Christ, Christ is in us? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point, John. Uh, well, did you notice how I answered that? I got, I'm going to incorporate a slide on that probably for my presentation on mysticism at the Faith at Risk conference. But the Romans 8 makes it clear by what, about what the New Testament means when it says Christ is in you. Because at one sense, it's, he is bodily present in heaven, at the right hand of God. Well, how is he in us? Well, Romans 8 tells us, I'm going to see how my King James does here. I'm kind of rusty on my King James vocabulary because I've been using numeric standards. See if the old English comes back to me. I learned it when I was in Bible college. This is my first Bible, by the way. I think I left my Bible at KKMS. I can't find it. Maybe it's at home. Did you happen to see it? I may have left it out at KKMS when I was doing a debate there on the radio. Um... Romans 8 says this, and this is important to know. Well, actually, in Romans is where we know that in me, that in my flesh dwells no good thing. But look at verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. 
Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, notice the synonymous parallelism. Hebrew thought is, is, comes in parallels. It says something one way, then it says it another, but they both mean the same thing. So on one verse it says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not a Christian. But in, then in the next verse saying, if Christ be in you, meaning what? That you do have the Spirit of Christ. Right? If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised Christ from the dead shall quicken your mortal bodies by a Spirit that dwells in you. So, this passage makes it very clear that when it says Christ is in you, what it means is you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's not saying that Christ isn't in heaven bodily with the marks of Calvary at the right hand of the Father, but it's saying that you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So, therefore, uh, it's true we're involved by the Holy Spirit, but it's not true that literally Jesus is in us, and if we go on a journey inward, we'll find Jesus. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. Yeah. There's a, well, there's a conflict, all right? The spirit and the flesh. It says in Galatians chapter five. So there's a conflict, but the way you do, you uh, crucify the flesh and the lusts thereof in Galatians, and the way you um, grow in the grace and knowledge of God is not by taking a journey inward and trying to sort out make, to make contact with the spirit world, and having made contact, trying to figure out which entities in that world are from God and which ones are not. That is not how the Bible suggests that we're going to be sanctified. And the people that teach that themselves say that it's a dangerous thing and you might end up with a lot of problems with demons. Amen. And so, uh, we keep our mind on things that are above, it says in Colossians. So, that's a total confusion that is exists in many people's minds because they haven't had clear, plain teaching from the Bible. Sometimes we'll have to preach through Galatians as... On the dock Isn't then. what God said? You are, in the end time, lovers of self. That's going inward. Who's in there? Me, myself, and I. Lovers of self. That's the only thing they're going after. It's not Christ. Yeah, if, if Colossians, 1, Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, set your mind on things above, above. not beneath. So we'll, we'll talk about that on November 6th. I have one hour to warn the people that come to the conference about the dangers of altered states of consciousness. Um, We need to be in our right mind when we study God's Word. We don't need to get into some other state. There was a guy that came here uh, 20 years ago, and he came to me, and he says, I need help. I said, all right, tell me what you need help about. He says, well, I've got two angels that speak to me. One of them is a good one who tells me that I should do things that God wants me to do. And the other one is the bad one that tells me to go do bad things. And they're fighting each other. And I'm having a real hard time staying with the good one. What should I do? I got the third one himself. But anyway. Well, what I said to him was this. They're both from Satan. They're both from Satan. This good, this light and dark side of the fourth is... Horus is just a new age thing. You're not to follow these voices, I told him. And the guy was really in a bad way because he was listening to these voices. The good one is just Satan masquerading as an angel of light. The bad one is just Satan, Satan not masquerading. They're both from Satan. I would, I would just ignore both of them and read the Bible. Oh. But see, what was going on was Satan had this guy tied up trying to listen to these voices and then despairing of ever actually it, it didn't help him because they're both just getting his attention away from God's word okay cross references we are well I was going that way let's start over here again Lois 1 Chronicles 29:11, and Pauline I owe her apology her name is Pauline alright I got it wrong one time or two times Psalm 104.1 Pauline and Kathy Micah 5.4 
And Dennis. Oh, this is the one I was just talking about. Colossians 3.1. Good. And um, Tyler, Hebrews 12.2. I don't... Camp doesn't have a Bible there. Oh, you do? Oh, sorry, Camp. I didn't see it. All I saw was your coffee. Okay, I'll get to you next, Tyler. Camp, you got Hebrews 12.2. <laughs> yeah, go ahead with 1 Chronicles 29.11. I think so. Our Lord God. <laughs> Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted and set above all. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the majesty and the kingdom. That's Did a great. I sing it? Uh, no thanks. <laughs> but we did use we used to sing that. Yes, we used to sing that. Psalm 104, one. <laughs> Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. Your throne is honor and majesty. Yeah, the idea of majesty, the throne of the majesty, that word is a description in the Old Testament that's used of God himself. Micah 5.4. The majesty, that's again using that term about the Lord, his majesty. And then Colossians 3 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. All right. Yeah, exactly. We don't look in, we look up. <laughs> I like how Jan ends. Well, how does Jan enter, enter show every Saturday? Look back. Look back and praise Him. Look around and serve Him. Look up and expect Him. You look forward or something like that. I don't remember how she says that, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> we had some good callers yesterday in the show. One guy was real articulate. How, let's look at that together, that clash of three and verse one. That one keeps coming up. Let's see if I can read this little one here. Oh, forget that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a numeric and standard, but it's really little. Okay, Colossians 3. There it is. Colossians 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we shall also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things... For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Okay? I sure like my New American Standard. <laughs> well, that's hard to read. Um, well, do you get the idea, though? What, notice that how is it... Uh, we just sent out 2,400 articles on Thursday about the means of grace. And... People need to know, okay, how can I do this? How exactly would I set my mind on things above if I wanted to actually do what Paul said to do here? What do you think? What would be a good way to do that? Okay, so prayer is directed upward to the throne room of God where we have an intermediary, Jesus our high priest. So prayer is not a journey inward but it's looking upward to God. So prayer is a way of seeking things which are above. What's another way we could do that? Study the Bible. Because God has inspired this, and this is His words to us. 
So when we read the Bible and study the Bible and preach the Bible, the very words of God are coming from Him to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, inerrant, infallible, and effectual. And the Word of God has, in, as it's received in faith, the power to change lives. And the Word of God informs us about what's good and evil. We don't need a little white and black demon, one telling us this and one telling us that, like this guy has claimed he had. It tells us right here. All right? It says you're dead legally. You died with Christ on the cross and raised from the dead with Him. And He's coming again. And when He does, you're going to appear with Him in glory. And knowing that one day you're going to spend your life with Him in glory, mortify. All right, what does that word mean? Mortify. This is the King James. I'm sure it's not in... Mortify means what? Kill. Mortify. Yeah. Crucify. Mortify means put to death. I mean, we don't use the word much in English anymore unless somebody says, I'm mortified. Um, but I heard John MacArthur uh, preaching on that, and he was telling what his mom used to say to him if he did something that was wrong. He says, she says, I'm mortified, and you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Well, now they think that that's psychologically damaging to say that. <laughs> but but John MacArthur says, you know, my mom was doing me a favor by saying, I'm mortified at you. Uh, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. He says, that's done me a lot more good in life than somebody saying that I should love myself. And, you know, if I just feel better about myself, then I won't do anything bad. But you can feel as good as you want about yourself. I won't put any I won't put anything to death. So... Put to death, therefore, your members. And don't live under these things because you're seeking things above. So that's what Colossians is telling us to do. And the reason we're seeking things above is that's where God is in Christ at His right hand. Okay, and then um, that was, uh, and then Hebrews 12, 2 camp. That's another one. Over and over and over. It says in the Testament that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yep, His work is done as far as paying for sins, but it continues as far as offering intercession. And so what He's doing there from that position of the right hand of the Majesty on high is interceding for us because He has bought us. He, The joy set before Him, I believe, was, was bringing... Many sons to glory to present us to the Father. And so, he is making sure that we get there. (laughs) That we get there um, not only in one piece, but in the kind of moral condition that we ought to be in. Yes? John. John 14. Yeah, he says, it's good for you that I go, then I might send the Holy Spirit. So, the Holy Spirit is God dwelling within us as Christians. Jesus is ascended into heaven. That's what is clear about the teaching of the Bible here. Okay, Hebrews 8 and verse 2. A minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. All right. What did God say to Moses about building the tabernacle in the Old Testament? How should Moses do it? Yep, I say he said this phrase, according to the pattern. And what Hebrews is going to tell us is that that pattern is a pattern after the heavenly one. All right. Exactly what that's going to be, we won't know until we get there. But it's it's a claim that there's a heavenly tabernacle and that the earthly one was made after the pattern of the heavenly. And the heavenly one is the one God pitched, not man. Okay, let's look that up in the... In the scriptures, uh, Tyler, Exodus 28:33 to 35, and Leif, Hebrews 9:23 and 24. Okay, Exodus 28:33 to 35. 
No, it doesn't seem right. I may have written it down wrong. 20, 28, Exodus 28.33. Is that what you got? Well, then I wrote it down wrong. Because I'm looking for one that talks about the pattern. And that was the pattern for Aaron's garb. Boy, some days I can read this. I wonder. 28. Okay, there's Aaron. Does anybody see the word pattern? You know, I, I'm using this my computer to record, so I can't go to my computer Bible. <coughs> I apologize. I'm just going to have to allude to it. <coughs> Excuse me. It says there that he should build this according. 25 what? All right, go ahead and read it. Yes. <laughs> okay, the pattern shown you on the mountain. Okay, sorry about that, Tyler. I missed. I, I don't know what I was thinking of when I wrote that down. Yeah, I'm sure that term pattern you could find many times if you just look it up. But it's clear that there's a pattern to this tabernacle, and it was one that God gave Moses on Sinai. Okay. 25, starting verse 8, says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle with all its furnishings exactly like the pattern that I showed you. Okay. That's, that's what we're looking for. So it's chapter 25. Um, Hebrews 9, 23 and 24. There's there's a claim that the that the earthly was a copy of the heavenly. Okay, it was a copy after the pattern, but Jesus entered the true one on our behalf. All right. Okay, verse three. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifice, and hence it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Um. Okay, Titus 2.14, let's see. Why don't you do this, that one, Tyler, Titus 2.14. And then, Norm, Hebrews 10.12. Okay. Right. Gave himself for us. Hebrews ten twelve. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. There it is again. <laughs> I think we should be able to get that one right. He sat down at the right hand of God. Over and over and over it says. Why? Uh, why does that have to be emphasized so much? Why was it preached in Acts when Peter got up and preached? Yeah, well, and I think there's another reason, because Jesus prophesied that there would be false Christs, false anointed ones. And if there are people, in fact, he'll say, they'll come in my name and say, I am the Christ. And so, whoever this is can't be the Christ if he's in heaven, and we won't see him again until he returns bodily. So, all these people on the earth who claim to be the anointed ones are false, yes. Well, yeah, that's one of the uh, important claims of the early church is that Jesus bodily ascended into heaven and, uh, and that he promised to come again. So we, we were talking about that in debate a little bit about this. One thing that all the churches have always believed is that Christ said he'd come again. Um, the issue is what are all the details that surround his coming? Yes. Yeah, didn't that verse 10, what was that verse again, 10-2, Hebrews 10-2, you still got that? 
Yeah. There's the finished idea. One sacrifice for sins forever. And you know what? I, I'm surprised it didn't come up in the debate if I would have brought up if I was the, the other guy. Usually they always throw at you, well, what about Ezekiel's temple? Um, if you believe literal fulfillment of prophecy, then you've got to believe that they're going to have animal sacrifices during the millennium. But here this says that he made one sacrifice for sins forever. So why would you have animal sacrifices during the millennium. I would have, he didn't ask that. I, uh, I thought he would for sure. So, I didn't have to answer it, did I? Let's see if we can make a little list here. What are some what, what are some reasons why it's important that Jesus is at the right hand of God? And you can help me with the list. We've already said several of them. God the Son. All right. God. That's his. That's his because he's one with God, okay. deity. Right. Number. Okay. It signifies his power and authority, both power and authority. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm writing down here. Hold on here. Yeah, they did. See, the, the teacher was seated in the chair of Moses. Wow. So, the, so he's, his deity, his power and authority, his work is finished. All right. It's, it's signified. What else? Yeah, nullify, nullify the claims of false Christs on the earth, right? Christ. An, an anointed, especially anointed one, yeah. Any claim of special anointing is claiming to be Christ. And so that's how they can come in his name. Because it seems like an, uh, a, uh, what would you say, an incongruity. How would you come in his name claiming to be him? Because if you're coming in his name, you're claiming to come by his authority. Right? And so if I am Christ, I don't need to come by his authority. I'm just Christ. So how do you come in his name claiming to be Christ? Well, the word Christ, Christos, means anointed one. All right? So what they're saying is, I'm coming, Jesus sent me to be the anointed one, is what they're saying. And that claim is made all the time by modern preachers. Yeah, Benny Hinn makes that claim, so that makes him a false Christ. Did that get on the tape? Oh. <laughs> okay, Kathy. <laughs> Yeah, and, and so, and he's ascended in heaven. And then what we need to know is that all Christians are anointed. You have an anointing from the Holy One, that's why I said you need no man to teach you. It doesn't mean that God doesn't use teachers, but there's nobody with some special insight that you only get from him. It's, it's equally given to all Christians. The Word of God is for all of us. Alright, we're still making our list. That's five. He's, he's the intercessor, the high priestly intercessor. High priestly, yeah, he ever lives to make intercession for us. High priestly intercessor. Okay, so, yeah, we don't, so we don't need to pope, but don't get Dan started. <laughs> we, we only got five minutes here. <laughs> High priestly uh, intercessor in heaven. Um, the work is finished. One of the claims. Here's one we haven't haven't added, but the reason, one of the reasons Peter preached on this was was this: the Jewish expectation was the Messiah is going to come and sit on the throne. All right, and so they said to the early Christians, "Well, you claim Jesus is the Messiah, but he was crucified." 
So what kind of Messiah has no throne? And the answer was, he is seated on the throne in heaven. And they cited Psalm 110 to prove it. And so it, so it established the fact that of his kingly status on a throne. All right, so um, kingly throne. That's number six. So we have to have at least one more because that's a bad number. Six is the number of man. So you got you got to have. There's got to be seven of them, or we really. Um, yeah, it is proved that he lives. I'm trying to think of it's deity, power, and authority that the work is finished. Falsifies the claims of people who think that they're the Christ on the earth. That he's a priestly intercessor. That he's the king on the throne. Um, I would have to just look at all the verses uh, where it says, "Set your thing, set your mind on things above." Uh, in Colossians, where Christ is at the right hand of God, knowing that when He comes again, that the, that you will be with Him in glory. And I think that implied is a promise of His coming again. Because as he said in John, if I go and make a place for you, I will come again to where I am may be also. So it reminds us of the promise of his return. Yeah, that's a future thing, though. God is the word. He will come again. That's our seventh one. You know what? I think that would be a nice sermon sometime. Have you ever worked on sermon prep before? <laughs> that would be a nice seven-point sermon on why Christ is the significance of Christ's ascent to the right hand of God in the new early church. It'd make a nice article too, wouldn't it? A nice essay. Yeah. All right. So he's at the right hand of God, um, having made one sacrifice for sins forever. It's appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Um, let's go to verse 4 of Hebrews 8. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Um, we talked about this earlier. Does anybody remember why he couldn't be a priest on earth? Why Jesus couldn't be a priest? Right. He's not from the family of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. And the law doesn't allow a priest from any tribe except for the tribe of Levi. So if he were on earth, he couldn't be a priest, according to this passage. But in heaven, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Yep. Who, who said that, John? You get a gold star. <laughs> well, whatever they give you in Sunday school when you get one right. We'll, we'll wait for heaven, right, for reward. Uh, Brian got one right earlier, too, so... Um, he couldn't be a priest at all. Why? Because he has to be from the tribe of Judah. And there's no kingly priest, according to Torah, other than Psalm 110, where there's a, where there's a kingly priest. And so he's a priest after that. Okay, um, got a few cross-references, and then we'll be ready to start verse 5 next time. Um, Mary... Uh, Ziegler, do you want to read for us Numbers 16 and verse 40? And Pete, Colossians 2.17. And Linda, 2 Peter 1.4. Now, yeah, the first one is Numbers 16 and verse 40. What happened to Korah and his followers? He dropped right into the bowels of the earth. Yep, they swallowed him up because he's challenged God's right to appoint who's going to be the leader. All right, he challenged God's authority through Moses, and he, and he mounted a rebellion. 
And uh, they found out right away that he wasn't right when he dropped out right in directly into hell. <laughs> I think after that, everybody goes, okay, I think Moses is the man. <laughs> we got a clue here. <laughs> but the reason uh, that passage Mary uh, cited is important is that it's just as important that God is appointing the priestly descendants of Aaron as he appointed Moses. So once God makes an appointment, if somebody is going to rebel against that and do it their own way, they'll end up like Korah, or at least we know what God thinks about that sort of thing. Okay, Colossians 2 and verse 17. Okay, there's a, there's a difference between the shadow and the substance. And so the, the, pa- the pattern that was done in the Old Testament of the tabernacle, the priesthood, and everything was the shadow. The substance is Christ Himself. 2 Peter 1 4. Magnificent divine promises that we might escape the corruption that is in the world. So, God keeps His promises. So it does us well to study together so we know what those promises are and it gives us hope. Since God is the Word that made flesh and dwelt among us, and not one iota of the Word of God, and the Word was made flesh, why do you never hear people elaborating on God being called the Word? The Word was made flesh. Not one heaven and earth has passed away before one iota of the Word. Yep. Why is that? Why do they connotate God being well, there's a lot of theological discussion about John 1. John's use of the word logos. And if you read, you know, the theological journal articles and all this stuff, they, they say, did he borrow it from Philo? Because Philo was a Jewish uh, philosopher who used the idea of the logos. Or did he get the idea from the Greek understanding of the logos? Or is it a Platonic understanding of the logos? They want to know, why did, why did John use that word uh, for Christ? And so there's all kinds of discussion about it. But I think that we do well to stick with the Hebrew background and not look to uh, Greek philosophy to find our answer. But, uh, but I think that in a very simple, the simplest answer is that it, is that it denotes God's self-expression. That God is present in this per- person. Yeah, God's expression of His Word. And so the Word made flesh in the sense that Jesus is the actual incarnation of God. And we see in Him who God is. So, thank you. Wonderful to study together. And this morning at 10.30, the church service and today's sermon is on Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18. God bless you.